The Permaculture Podcast is made possible through the support of listeners. And for the fall fundraiser, I need your help. We have two goals this year, to fund the podcast through 2022 and to complete a special multi-part series documenting the legendary work of Rosemary Morrow. To do this, we need to raise $12,000 and have raised 500 so far towards this goal. I know this is a big ask, especially after more than a year that has been hard for most of us. But if half of the people who downloaded this episode donated just $1, we would hit our goal. For those of you who don't know, Rosemary is one of the pioneers of permaculture, working and teaching in the field for 40 years. Her work is also what I personally draw upon when developing a permaculture curriculum. Together we have a unique opportunity to produce a multi-part series documenting her life, impact on, and vision for permaculture design and the permaculture community. With your donation, with your donation we'll be able to capture and share Rosemary's story with listeners all over the world. Whether you can give $1, $5, or more, any amount will help. Donate online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, using Venmo at permaculturepodcast, or drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, care of Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. And if you'd like to read Rosemary's words, her books, Earth User's Guide to Permaculture, Earth User's Guide to Teaching Permaculture, and the ebook A Good Home Forever, are available from Meliodora Publishing through the web store at permacultureprinciples.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In this episode, we hear from each of the guests in the Permaculture, Land, and Land Access series as they address the question, what can we do to improve land access? particularly for those who want to grow food for people. We'll hear from each of them in the order they appeared in the series so far, beginning with Jesse Frost, followed by Sarah Mock and Amy Rose Fole, and ending with Rihanna Kowalsik. Enjoy their responses to the question, and I'll join you again after. Land access is an enormous issue. Small acreage is going to be the most accessible. Sometimes forest land is going to be the most accessible because forest land tends to be, especially like younger forest land tends to be a little bit more affordable depending on where you are. And I think that also one thing that we've been talking about a lot with no-till growers is collaborative farming, getting together with more than one family or more than one farm and working out a business that's maybe a dual partnership LLC or a cooperative or whatever it may be, that getting together with several people and either leasing a piece of property or buying a piece of property and doing it all, you know, legally sound and making sure that you, everybody is protected, I think is a great approach to land access right now because land is extremely expensive. And then after 2020, a lot of it was gobbled up and became very expensive. The market became very high and that land will probably be tied up for a few years, at least much of it, and it'll be hard to access. So leasing land, looking for opportunities with the people that purchase that land that are maybe looking for farmers. I think that that will be a market, that there will be a lot of people who purchase land who've learned that it's a lot of work and who are looking for more help. So that may be an opportunity to slide into a, you know, at least a good starter place to farm, but also perhaps maybe a situation where it can be a lease to own. And 
I think that another thing that should be said about that is that people shouldn't be afraid to lease. People shouldn't be afraid to be on farms that they know they're not going to be on forever. It's okay to improve a property that you don't live on. I think that we should all be thinking about that and doing that. I always feel good. We've moved our farm several times and we've never felt negative about that because we improved that property before we left it. It's better than when we found it. And I think that that's a really good thing to be doing generally. No, you don't get to take your soil with you and you don't get to take your perennials, but those perennials can live on and maybe you can convince the people buying it to keep them going. And those are the sort of things that, you know, we should be living like that anyway. And so I try and convince people to not be too hesitant about leasing and potentially getting into situations that are not necessarily guaranteed to be long-term. And because you can gain a lot of chops that way, you know, figure out exactly how you want to farm and what your market is, but without the massive capital monster eater, the capital devourer that is owning property. It just completely consumes all of your capital. And once you don't have anything to work with, you know, once all your capital is tied up, it slows your operation down. It slows your production down. But if you can spend a few years not having to deal with the mortgage and insurance and your hot water heater going out and all of the things that come with owning a property, you can invest that money in more mobile equipment, caterpillar tunnels for, you know, I talk a lot about vegetable production as my, my primary thing. So things like caterpillar tunnels, which are tunnels that can be easily moved. Any sort of, yeah, small equipment that you need, all of that stuff, you can invest in your, your entire, you know, production system. And then if you need to move or when you need to move, you have all that that you can take with you and you don't have that giant mortgage leaning, you know, looming over you. That's something I encourage people to think more about. And I kind of wish that we had put more thought into that myself and my wife, that we'd really heeded that advice early on, because you'll hear a lot of older farmers say it, but a lot of younger farmers and a lot of people just getting into farming, they're not as likely to hear it. And I want to emphasize that I think it's really important to think about the opportunity of leasing and not think of it as a negative thing of not owning land. Think of it as a, a very positive thing with a lot of potential for getting your farm started the right way. So the funnest part of writing this book was diving into the historical record of an alternative way of farming. So many of the issues in the agricultural system come back to this idea that at some point we said small family farms are the ideal and everything else like has to go. We don't believe in it. And one of the reasons why that was such a ruthless campaign was because there were alternatives, right? Indigenous people in the Americas had a strong tradition of collaborative, cooperative farming in the commons. Europeans were very familiar with the common system. European peasants also had commons. African people, when they were brought, when they were kidnapped and brought to the Americas as chattel slaves, also came from a tradition in many places of common style agriculture, community farming, managing landscapes on a bigger scale. And even Asian Americans in the Western United States, as they started to come over as laborers and were faced with incredible racist barriers to being able to have access to land, one of the ways that they overcame that was by collaborating, purchasing land as a group, building complex kind of structures to formalize their farms and work together more intimately than a co-op, but actually as like kind of co-owners of the same organization. So if you are looking for farmlands, but you're not able to find it, or you're not able to find it for yourself or just for yourself and your partner, find 
unrelated partners to you. I use the example of how Silicon Valley or, or kind of the startup entrepreneurship model works, but if you had an idea for a business and you went to a venture capitalist and sat down with them and said, I have this great idea for a business. We're going to grow food and sell it to people. The whole business is going to be me and my partner who I'm married to. They would think you are insane. There are so many skill sets required in agriculture, right? You need at least the technical skills of actually farming well. You need a good manager to be able to manage people to make sure the day-to-day is going smoothly and to kind of communicate between the technicians and the leader. And you need someone who is a visionary, who understands where you're going, who has the bigger picture in mind and who is able to guide your way there. At least those three things. Probably you also need like an accountant and a bookkeeper and a lawyer and someone who is in charge of business development, maybe some salespeople, maybe some marketing people. But the idea that all of those roles or most of those roles could be filled by two people, two related people who are also trying to run a household and a private life is problematic to say the least. So, you know, I think one of the powerful ways that people could move forward in thinking of their farms as a business and not as something, the biggest reason why we organize farms that way right now is because people think of farms firstly as something they want their children to inherit. That's not usually how we think about businesses, right? Investments, yes. Businesses, no. So if you want to build a business, you want to have access to good work, you want to provide good food to the community, and you want to pursue good environmental outcomes. Look for partners, find people who have skills complementary to yours, build meaningful structures, put meaningful legal business structures in place so that you understand whose people's roles are, what the ownership model is, have that kind of clear communication set up at the beginning. And then one with like more people comes a lot more security for each of the individual groups, because basically like more people, more partners, more potential other sources of income, you're going to be more likely to be able to find an investor, work with an agrarian land trust, something like that, who is interested in working with you. Be more legitimate if you're approaching maybe a community group or someone who owns land in an urban or peri-urban space looking for farmland. There's a great example of this in DC right now. Actually, I think their name is Epigy Farms. They're organized, you know, unrelated partners have found land farming in an urban space. So that would be my biggest recommendation is just, first of all, ask yourself, like, are you trying to homestead or are you trying to create a farm business? And if you're trying to create a farm business, think beyond just like, I'm going to do this with my partner. Think about who can I bring in, who has different skills than me, who has, can fill the gaps that I leave and how can we organize a business to be able to leverage all our resources and be competitive and find a customer base and serve them and do something unique in the market, build a brand, and then just kind of go from there. And there's a big community of people out there who are already working on this. And yeah, folks are interested in learning more, meeting people locally, happy to chat one-on-one. You know, I think one of the biggest things that the idea that I just presented is kind of the, the whole big team farm concept, which I get to in the book at the end. I'll just underline that finding team members who are different from you is really critical. And there's such a Black, Indigenous, and people of color have been so systematically not only removed, abused and removed from agricultural spaces and systems, but then erased. Their stories have been erased from all of this work in agriculture, not only, you know, permaculture, regenerative agriculture's indigenous roots, the way that slaves, that Black people in the South really defined agriculture. There would be no rice in the South if it weren't for 
Africans. White people did not know how to grow almost any crops in the South, and they were completely dependent on their slaves as incredibly skilled agriculturalists to bring that knowledge and set up the industries that are there. A lot of those same things could be said for specialty crop production in California, if not for Asian immigrants who were doing that work. California would be a fundamentally different place and would not be the salad bowl of America that it is today. And so I would just say when people are out thinking about maybe structuring their farm differently or transitioning or thinking about wanting to get into agriculture and thinking about looking for those partners, BIPOC people move in the world in a really powerful way. They have access to communities that white folks don't. They speak in a way that accesses people that have been left out of this whole like new food movement. And there's such a tremendous opportunity to center BIPOC voices in this conversation and to center BIPOC people in farm organizations. And if we want to be able to tackle some of the bigger problems that we talked about earlier in this podcast and really get to kind of some systemic change, that work starts in my mind with changing the voices who are involved and getting more people the access that they need to be part of this work. And one of the most powerful ways that people who are already in agriculture can do that is if you're white farmer or white farmland owner, maybe go look for some BIPOC people to be part of your operation or to lead your operation or to will your operation to. Just things to think about as if we really want to see really big scale change, it's not enough to just change the story. We have to change the people as well. There's so many ways to look at it and so many people trying to come up with a solution to this. I had a little bit of experience in this last year. So one of the things that I was actually tapped to work on was crafting the grant-making language around the Virginia Access Investment Fund for the Department of Agriculture. I worked with Jill Brownow, who is now our Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, when she was the commissioner here in Virginia. And what our task force was meant to do was to work with BIPOC farmers There was a series of service stakeholder meetings that we worked together to work with Black, Indigenous, and Latinx community farmers and retailers. I mean, retailers that are selling fresh vegetables at the neighborhood level. And one of the things that was absolutely flooring to me, and these things could be used for any number of things, they could not be used to purchase land. And I've been in a lot of meetings talking about like grants.gov and some USDA grants, pretty much none of them allow you to buy land, which is generally the first thing that you need when you're going to start something like this. I mean, there's always leasing, but I'm not a huge proponent of leasing. And I'm sorry, I keep coming back to the whole, the whole native thing. But I mean, that's the whole reason that my family is off reservation. There's no building of generational wealth, just like the Black community was disenfranchised in America when there was no 40 acres and they had been in a disadvantage for generations. They fed this country. They should know better how to do this than anybody, but there's not a lot of Black farm land ownership. And I feel like that is a huge problem. I feel like it needs to be addressed at a governmental level. And I think there needs to be serious policy changes surrounding those things. I really think, honestly, that it's abhorrent that you can't buy land with those grants and those loans. And I think it's purposely worded or crafted that way to keep those in power in power and those without without. And that's what's led to the food deserts and food apartheid and the generational wealth gap 
and demographic disparities and wealth. And it was done on purpose to all of us. One of the things this past year that was really impactful for me and kind of put a bee in my bonnet, there was a particular gubernatorial candidate that I had a phone meeting with. So in 2020, I participated in the Women's Earth Alliance through the Sierra Club. And basically, it's an accelerator program for female nonprofit leaders in the areas of like food justice, environmental justice, that sort of stuff, you know, access, things like that. People that are working towards making a difference. It was really amazing and fortuitous that uh, LaVisha Rollins from Concerned Citizens of Charles City County was literally just, she was one of our cohorts for 2020 and one of my Women's Earth Alliance sisters, and she was literally only an hour away. So over the course of the accelerator program, you know, we talked a lot online, via phone, WhatsApp. We met up a couple times, and then we decided that we had this crazy plan that we wanted to hatch. There's a lot of vacant land in the city of Petersburg. This particular candidate grew up there coming from a disadvantaged community, and we thought that we were going to get her to buy in to work together with us. Lavisha is by trade a green architect. And so what we wanted to do was create a green tiny home community on land surrendered to us by the city of Petersburg. And both of us already run nonprofits. So we were going to use those channels to make a uh, public-private partnership and to a tiny home community interplanted with a food forest with wraparound services for education, healthcare, transportation, mental health, and job training. Because in my former life, once upon a time, when I was a nurse for some of that time, I was actually a nurse at a correctional facility. And I was a nurse at a correctional facility during the time that the state of Virginia did away with a lot of their mental health facilities. And so what that meant to me was in my job of making arrangements between inmates coming in, doing their assessments, caring for them while they're there, making all of those arrangements, and then making their arrangements for life on the outside, making sure their mental health care was taken care of. With a lot of my resources were all of a sudden in a vacuum and or disappeared overnight. And it was very disturbing to me. And so fast forward. Almost 20 years later, here I am feeding people in that same community where I am witnessing firsthand some of these same people without mental health care, living in motels on the side of the road. We're feeding them, providing personal care items, home care, home goods and whatnot to them, clothing free of charge. And nobody's helping them. Social services isn't helping them, not in a meaningful way. The ladies that volunteer to help feed and whatnot um, and provide donations of personal items and household items that we collect and get down there through a series of runners and delivery people. It's absolutely astounding to me. Sorry, I'm getting off track. So fast forward 20 years, Levisha and I have this phone meeting with this gubernatorial candidate. And it was exasperating. We had buy-in from the healthcare community from educators willing to work and do all of these things, intensive wraparound services for tiny home, home communities. We had a plan. These people would participate in the plan for about two to three years. They'd have to adhere to all of everything, get them out of these 
motels off the streets. And a lot of it was precipitated by mental health care disparities in the state. And this is what happens. And nobody cares about these people. So we proposed doing the intensive permaculture, food forest around the houses. Houses would be green, solar, everything would be taken care of. And this particular candidate, who we had really great hopes for doing something different, being different, it's just like everybody else. What we need is economic advancement. We need companies to come in so people can slow. This is what she was saying. We need companies to come in so people can slowly pull themselves out of poverty. And I'm thinking to myself, it was exasperating. I'm thinking to myself, so there's 250 years difference for black families to be on par with white families presently in, I don't know about the country, this state. 217 years for women to be on par with men in this state. Why would we wait for the Titanic to turn itself when we could hire a tugboat to turn that thing around tomorrow? And there are so many philanthropy dollars to go to things that are more, far more ridiculous than actually doing work and real good and having the possibility to change the trajectory of people's lives and change the lives of their children and their children's children. I guess maybe I've become jaded against politicians, but there are some really great politicians that do really do want to do well. But it was the most disappointing thing because there are so many there are so many vacant lots that we could do really great things with just in the city of Petersburg alone. But getting political buy-in is so exasperating. So if you know any politicians or any politicians are listening to this, please reach out to me. We have plans. <laughs> but yeah, that's the biggest thing. There's tons of land. There's tons of disused lots. There's tons of lawns that people would probably gladly offer up. We just need to work together and really care about one another to make these changes happen. Here in D.C., I can sort of be a little specific and maybe some things will overlay to other cities. So I'll say, let's start with the farmers since I've worked in agriculture for a long time. I think urban agriculture is finally starting to get the level of respect that it deserves and resources. I mean, we're not there yet, but we're seeing positive signals. So we have a very new Office of Urban Agriculture now underway. And in D.C., I know we've had some conversations with them as part of the food justice group that I'm a part of. So they are looking for ways to see how can we expand. I think a lot of that is going to look it's going to be more structured, right? It's going to be larger rooftop gardens, whether that's in the soil or hydroponic. That's my guess for how a lot of that's going to happen or through schools and institutions, which is really exciting. In New York City, the work I sort of alluded to was working with public schools. And there are lots of opportunities to create technically school gardens, but in some cases, mini urban farms in that way. So I'm thinking that's probably going to be how it is. Hopefully the Office of Urban Agriculture continues to get resources and disseminate grants and other opportunities. There's also a policy overlay. So both with urban agriculture and land access for individuals or other kinds of groups, getting involved in your local legislature or with your mayor in the local politics is really important because they help decide how land is managed. You know, DPR here, which is the Department of Parks and Recreation, does work with a lot of community gardens. They have actually done a really great job. There's a, a very well-known human in the system. Josh Singer is part of DPR and runs something called the Doug Newsletter, which is like the thickest manifesto of resources on growing and gardening and anything related that he puts out, I think, weekly. 
he's created a really welcoming space and has made DPR a pretty positive institution. I believe DPR owns and either, I don't know if leases is the right word, but provides access to almost every community garden in the city. So they have a really large footprint in that sense. So they are providing a lot of community garden spaces and would be a place to go to if you were looking to legally establish your own community garden in you know an empty square of land you see somewhere. I know that I just did a workday with Wangari Gardens in Northwest DC, which is an amazing community garden operation. It's both got individual plots, but then a literal community space where anyone can garden or glean or rest or enjoy. And that lot land is actually owned by DDOT, I think because it's positioned in that tangle of roads very close to larger intersections. So they are working in sort of a weird space with DDOT. And so it's knowing which city agency owns or runs the land, manages the land that you want to work with. For the individual, I, again, always encourage people to be proactive. I think a lot of folks in my master gardener class are a little less experienced than I am. And so they have a lot of questions about those sorts of things. And if they can just sort of take over a vacant lot and, you know, to each their own, I don't want to give legal advice. But I often sort of tell folks, you would be surprised at the spaces you find if you talk to people. You know, I live in a row home. I'm utilizing my yard space. My landlord doesn't care. But even if you live in a multi-unit building, what's going on with the land around the building? Does your apartment management care about that? If you just started gardening it, would they mind? Or if you do see a vacant space, reaching out to your council member and seeing like, if you can figure out who owns the space, can you get access? Again, Parks spaces sometimes have it. So I think there's a lot of opportunities. You can also guerrilla garden. I mean, there's a whole whole manifestos have been written about seed bombing. I encourage you if you do want a guerrilla garden that you focus on native plants and pollinator friendly plants because you probably will not be happy with the uh, soil tests if you did perform them in uh, the average place in an urban area. So I would advise against growing food, but you can still plant flowers or other plants that are really excellent for local flora and fauna. And like a pollinator garden or native prairie plants are excellent for bees and butterflies and all those other active positive insects. So that is a positive thing you can do anywhere. And I will, I'll openly encourage you to uh, sprinkle some pollinator friendly seeds kind of in any, any open area you might find. And that was Jesse Frost, Sarah Mock, Amy Rose Full and Rihanna Kowalsik. What do you think of their answers to the question about improving land access? Whose response do you resonate most with? How would you answer this question? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes. Send an email to show at permaculturepodcast.com or get in touch by sending a text to or calling 717-827-6266. Up next is the final episode in the Permaculture Land and Land Access series, with my final thoughts. Until then, spend each day working to improve land access for those who want to grow food, while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.